I read on Twitter that one of your exes in real life thought that the character of Felix might have been based on him. And you kind of said, ah, nobody, it's not. I have had a couple of different instances where people were like, is this based on me? And I was like, no. And also, did you read it? It has nothing to do with you whatsoever. But but the sex boyfriend that we're talking about is not so canny. <laughs> <laughs> Today on the podcast, I speak with Lauren Euler. We talk about dumb exes, apocalyptic mindsets, and who we are on the internet. We also talk about her new novel, Fake Accounts. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. So excited. This book is crazy. I love it. I didn't realize it was so crazy. And then everyone was like, this book is crazy. (laughs) It's just, there's such an intensity to it. And in the reading, there's such an intensity. I just think it's amazing to get into your head even more. Because I feel like we've been waiting years to have this happen. (laughs) We met at a live event. I can't remember the timing of that. Was that about 2006? Would you have started writing this then? Oh, 2016. Uh, 2016. I probably had just started writing this novel. And the novel takes place in that time frame from January to June or so, 2017. It was just after Donald Trump had been elected, but he hadn't yet been inaugurated. What was interesting about that kind of slip of time for you to really dive into? Well, I think everybody was, it was a really intense and and sort of chaotic in in the the media environment was very chaotic the the media environment was like full of these really apocalyptic predictions sort of frantic attempt to determine what what Donald Trump was going to mean and and I found that very interesting because everybody was sort of trapped both in this very specific present moment but also desperate to like predict the future and that led to some very interesting behaviors that I found very sort of inspiring, I guess, for fiction. Oh, absolutely. I think we were all part of that. And especially if you were in New York and tied to the media world in some way, it felt like a slap in the face, like Mm -hmm. our finger on the pulse was not on any pulse. It was totally off. But I'm wondering, like, in this period, what weird behaviors did you notice about yourself? Oh, I think so in the book, the narrative, the book sort of begins by talking about how everybody thinks the world is going to end for all of these various reasons. And then it quickly turns to this sort of narrator who's in her twenties and she is like, everybody thinks everything's totally pointless now. The world's ending. We can kind of do whatever we want. There's a convenience in the apocalyptic mindset. Therefore, I'm going to do something naughty that I've been wanting to do, which is snoop through my boyfriend's phone. I do not believe that I did that at the time. I certainly have done it before, but perhaps not because of Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) What did you Uh, find when you did it other times? Oh, nothing really. Just sort of like boring, kind of like maybe talking to your ex-girlfriend sometimes, but much more just like you're talking to your ex-girlfriend when you were dating three years ago and that's sort of interesting, right? Like that kind of thing is always more interesting to me necessarily than any kind of subterfuge. But 
and maybe that's a novelistic impulse to like want to know what someone's relationship was like, even though it's over and it has nothing to do with me now. For people who might not have read your book yet, what's your book about in a couple of sentences? So the plot of the book is that just after Trump's elected, a woman snoops through her boyfriend's phone and instead of finding that he's cheating on her, discovers that he is operating a very popular conspiracy theory meme account on Instagram. She decides to break up with him and and orchestrate the sort of perfect comeuppance scenario by doing so. But before she can do that, something happens. And in order to process this, she moves to Berlin where she met the boyfriend and becomes more or less a compulsive liar, making up different personalities on a bunch of OkCupid dates, but as well as with her new German roommate and the woman that she babysits for and pretty much everyone she meets in this new country where she does not speak the language. In terms of themes, the book is about, well, social media, manipulation, fiction itself, I think. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of stuff about fiction and novels in the book as well. Relationships and politics. And and I think there's a dash of feminism in there as well. The opening of your book is just one of the strongest I have read. And it's, if you could just set that up for us again, so we know that she has finally kind of found a moment to look through his phone, but can you explain a little bit more about where they are in their relationship and why she's kind of seized this moment now? Yes. So the narrator does not have a name. Her boyfriend's name is Felix. And they have been going out for about a year and a half. And they're in one of these sort of relationships where she wants to take it to the next level. She thinks that they should be hanging out more than they are, basically. And he's kind of evasive and unrevealing. And she really wants him to open up to her about his childhood and, and his feelings and his traumas and all of this stuff. And he's like, no, you already know it. Or, or no, shut up, leave me alone. And she, so she becomes very suspicious and wants to go through his phone. And the way that she talks about it is kind of matter of fact. She's very confident as a narrator. But then, but, but as she's describing how she gets into his phone, it's clear that this is an extremely premeditated act. She's, she has to sort of watch him type out his numerical passcode for weeks in order to catch what numbers he's pushing. And then she has to wait for him to be away from the phone long enough to do this and although he doesn't have any social media which adds to his mystique he is he does have his phone on him all the time and so she has to wait basically for him to get a little bit drunk and then go to sleep in order to snoop through it i think it was such a great detail that he sleeps with his phone under his pillow usually and that would be red flag behavior for anyone. Yes. And and she also sort of doesn't think about him sleeping with his phone under his pillow. But then when she becomes suspicious of him, she realizes that actually this is a very weird thing to do. And and why is he doing it? And is it because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want her, anyone her to look at his phone. And when she does get her chance, do you think it's okay to say what happens then and then will be very mysterious about kind of what unfolds. So she gets her chance, she snoops through his phone, and instead of finding that he is is cheating on her with someone, she finds that he has social media accounts that he had led her to believe he didn't have. So she looks at his Instagram, and in fact he's been operating a popular conspiracy theory meme account on Instagram where he has like tens of thousands of followers. 
So she is sort of overwhelmed by this. What does it mean? At the time, conspiracy theories were not such a major force in politics, and they weren't something that were discussed in the media that often. They were just sort of kind of interesting thing to be thinking about. And you could go on the internet, various parts of the internet, and say like, oh, these are the conspiracy theorists. QAnon didn't exist or anything like that. So she, so she's like, whoa, this means this guy is totally a psychopath. I can, I now have the grounds to break up with him, which in fact I wanted to do anyway. So as we get to know your narrator, we realize that she's often talking to all of her ex-boyfriends who she imagines a kind of this chorus reading above her or kind of monitoring her thoughts and calling her out on them, which is something I loved so much. And I imagined them as, you know, those two old guys, Muppets, who are like, oh, yeah. the critics out there. Like, yeah, the grumble, critics. Grumble, grumble, How did that idea come to you? And then how did you decide to work it in? Because it seems like a very structural thing as well. Just before... I started writing the book. I worked at Broadly, which is the women's website advice. And one of the big themes at the time was about how the only people who are friends with their exes are totally crazy and no one in their right mind would be friends with their exes. And I disagree with that very strongly, not only because I'm friends with my exes, but also I just think fundamentally, if you spend a lot of time with someone, it makes sense that you would want to, you, it doesn't make sense that you would have a breakup and then never speak to them again. But also I think your exes know you in a very particular way and that can be kind of threatening at times. So they have this knowledge of you that may be incomplete, but which you do not necessarily want other people to have access to, which is why I think it's often very upsetting to run into your ex at a bar or something, particularly if you're with a new partner. So I liked the idea of having that kind of unstable voice contradicting her or qualifying what she's saying. And I don't, I you know, it's not that every single thing that they say is more believable than what she says, but you get a sense, you realize that she may not be the most confident, self-aware person that she's trying to present herself as in part through those voices. I also think as I was reading it, you imagine your own exes all getting together and conferring. Yes. You keep thinking, well, what would mine say and what would they say to each other? And then I started getting anxious. And then, <laughs> and I think too, what was interesting, I think what's interesting too about ex-boyfriends and boyfriends in general, like I really wanted to write a novel in which a boyfriend, not a husband or like a lover or something, but, but the concept of boyfriends is really emphasized in some way, because I think it's very, it's supposed to be kind of a banal, not necessarily serious relationship, right? It's something that you have when you're young. But it's actually a very meaningful <laughs> part of life, I think. Um, I read on Twitter that one of your exes in real life thought that the character of Felix might have been based on him. And you kind of said, ah, nobody, it's not. And it reminded me that I think some great author said that for men, as long as you make them like have sexual prowess in whatever you write about them, like they don't care if they're an asshole, if they're like a max murderer or a psychopath, but as mm -hmm. long as they, you know, are, are good in bed, they, they don't even see the other parts of the character. And when I saw that, I thought, oh my God, there's one that just happened. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's very funny too. I have had a couple of different instances where people were like, is this based on me? And I was like, no. And also, did you read it? It has nothing to do with you whatsoever. But but yeah, in particular, the Felix character is an extreme character. There's not that many people like him. I have met people who sort of have these qualities, which is the sort of like charming, compelling presence that actually reveals basically nothing about the person behind it. It became more interesting to like think about that in the context of social media where everybody thinks everybody knows everything about each other, even though that's not true. And how can you use that sort of false sense of knowledge to manipulate people? And so long story short, this ex-boyfriend that we're talking about is not so canny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that you mentioned social media because obviously it's an underpinning of this book. It couldn't exist without it. There's a fluidity with social media that's captured with our narrator, which is our phone and this connection is very much there. How do you feel that your narrator represents the kind of almost like the worst cliches of the millennial? Well, I think she's filtering. She's looking at her phone all the time. I mean, it's, I don't think of her as being one of these like terminally ill online people, right? But there are long passages where you see her on the internet for hours at a time. And I think what I wanted to show is accidentally being on your phone in bed for two hours when you first wake up in the morning is something that I thought needed to be represented in fiction. But I also wanted to show the way that it, the connections that you make and the ideas that are there and sort of everything that happens on the phone flows through offline world as well. So there's, I don't think the distinction between real life and the internet is valuable. And so throughout the book, you see her acting in a certain way and you see people interacting with her in ways that sort of mimic the cliches of what goes on online. So I think the best example of this is when she ends up moving to Berlin. And while she's there, she decides to embark on a sort of fake project, which is to make up different personalities on a bunch of OkCupid dates that she goes on. And I was thinking a lot about the way people construct personas online and the way they sort of emphasize certain qualities and sort of make these declarations about themselves rather than letting people know them like in a more natural way. And can you tell us about what inspires each of those personalities as she goes on these different online dates? What exactly is her framework? Because I loved that. I don't know about you, but it's only when things are going terribly wrong that I go to Susan Miller. Yes. Who so she <laughs> yes, she decides the narrator decides that she's going to base each of her okay cupid yes. personalities on a different zodiac sign. So she goes through all 12. Um and she makes up totally different jobs, totally different sort of characteristics that she has. She she develops like sort of ticks and things that that she thinks have to do with the sort of with the personality traits that Aries or Leos or or whatever have. She's sort of unmoored at this point in the book, and she doesn't know what where to turn. She doesn't know what to do. She needs to have some kind of structure in her life. And I think people turn to astrology when they feel this way as well. They're like, well, I, it, I need to have some arbitrary framework in order to make sense of my life because it's just floating. When I was working at this women's website, astrology was very popular, and it became this sort of way to sort of succinctly communicate your personality to people without having to be questioned about it. 
And I think that that's also appealing to her in a certain way because to, there's a way in which she doesn't actually want to be known or she wants to be known without having to make a lot of effort. <laughs> and so she goes about it in this very roundabout kind of doomed way. Well, I think about our Instagram handles and what we say about ourselves. There's such a shorthand for how to signal the type of person you are. I think that that's why so, the internet is so compelling for particularly young people because it seems to offer like, oh, look, you can be like this. You can be like, you just have to pick your pick your character and then go for it. But it ends up being quite dissatisfying because if you build your relationships on, on lies, then you're not going to have meaningful relationships. But also it's interesting if you build that personality online, are you allowed to change your mind about the things you've said or who you thought you were? Increasingly, I realize that the responses that you get to anything that you publish are so varied and the sort of things that contribute to the way someone reads something are so varied that you just can't possibly control anything. You don't want to be wrong. You don't want to admit to having been wrong in the past, right? Like you don't want to be embarrassed and have to answer for yourself, even though what does it matter if some random writer was wrong on Twitter in 2020 and then they changed their mind? You know, many pundits are wrong every day and they don't seem to, they don't seem to care very much at all about that. There's a moment in the novel where she goes to the Women's March in D.C. and I got a sense too that she was walking through this crowd unmoored and I went to that as well and felt similarly unmoored and disconnected and confused, not for the things I believed in that we were there for, but why why I was walking in a throng of all these women, I was just, I have to admit, like confused by my impulses. And I think your character is as well. Her sense is that they're doing it all for the wrong reasons, right? But mm -hmm. her reasons, she truly believes in equality and feminism and all these things. So if everyone's going that doesn't really believe in it, then, well, she had better go because she really does. But it tapped into my own confusion about activism and is something real if you don't put it on social media almost? Like, did did it exist? Well, I think she says, you know, there's it feels very bad to be posting things online and it feels like because I think anything that you post on social media has this element of either bragging or trying to get something out of it. You can't post on it without trying to accrue attention to yourself. She decides she's going to go because she's in a yoga class. And this actually happened to me. The week before the Women's March, the yoga class she's in finishes up and the woman who's teaching the yoga class says, there's no class next week because I'm going to the Women's March. All of you should go too. And everybody in the class is like, I'm going to the Women's March. Me too. Me too. And so she has this kind of jarring, like, if these white ladies and, you know, if these ladies in Brooklyn are going to go <laughs> to the Women's March, then I have to go as well. And when you were there... You didn't get the sense from everyone that was around you. It was I didn't get the sense that there were people who were like, why am I here? This is strange, right? Everybody seemed to have purpose except for you, even though that's impossible. There are surely lots of people who felt like we did that. It was like confusing and overwhelming and, and what, what does it mean? But it just 
it just was what it was, I guess. I don't know, not to not to be yeah. No, and not to go but. like harp on this, but it's interesting, like sometimes maybe things, their meaning comes afterward. From that moment on, Trump's presidency really pushed social media to such extremes. And I think because he used it so much, it in, we all of a sudden were more obsessed and engaged more than ever, which I think is fascinating and now I'm feeling a with wanting a withdrawal of that there's a really interesting conversation in the book with a woman this woman says you know all I want to do is bake and not watch the news and like I had that chuckle and our narrators being like very judgmental of that and I thought oh my goodness I think like I am her I have had the impulse to totally withdraw why do I have to what go on the news every morning when it's so horrendous. And I think people are having this conversation everywhere. I think it's also important to note that like as a privileged white person, you don't, stepping out onto the street, your life isn't affected by the things in, happening in the news in the way that other people's are. Mm-mm. But why was that conversation so important for you to place in the book? I think that... There there was this New York Times article. Basically, it's about a rich guy in Ohio or something who m- not only stopped reading the news, but does not allow any news programs to be played in his home. And he does not want any of his friends or children to mention any stories to him. It's like a real pro- – he has a real mo- news prohibition. I think this is from 2017. And there were lots of – everybody got really mad about it, obviously, because it was like terrible – but it made me think, you know, what actually was his knowing the news? What good did that do if it, it if if he never did anything about it in one way or another? During this point in the conversation, this woman is telling the narrator that she stopped reading the news because it wasn't, you know, serving her and she wants to get back to the root of her feelings and the essence and she needs to work on her paintings and all this stuff. And the narrator is like, okay, well, she has this immediate visceral reaction, but then she's like, why does it matter if she reads the news? What good is my having awareness doing for the world? And she can't really answer. And I think that there's a lot of like questions about what does being aware do for you as an individual? What is the re- why do you want to have knowledge? Like, why do you want to n- know how things work? What's going on behind the scenes? And what do you miss when you? are overconfident in your knowingness, right? And I think conspiracy theories are, are the opposite side, right? It's a, a sort of overinterpretation of the news and like your desire to know goes into overdrive and then it prevents you from knowing anything at all as well. So there's two, I see, I see them as sort of opposites in a way because they're both totally wrong. <laughs> Do you spend time going down those rabbit holes on social media with the conspiracy theorists now? like Not really. I mean, I, I think you can tell from the book, the narrator is not that interested in the conspiracy theory. For various reasons, she tries to look at Felix's, find Felix online besides just the Instagram account, but he's very sort of scrupulous about his online presence and she really can't find anything about him. She goes to a, a long list of different websites and forums and all this stuff trying to find evidence of him and people there you know there are people sort of discussing him on a couple of forums like reddit or something but he really like he is able to keep it contained 
And what she's interested in is not the conspiracy theories. And I think also, generally speaking, what people are interested in is not the content of the conspiracy theories themselves, but but it's what injecting uncertainty into a narrative does to you and does to the narrative itself. So you all, there's a little bit of you, I think, whenever you hear a conspiracy theory that thinks, well, what, well, what if it's true? Or some part of this is true. Where does this come from that exists in the real world? Like, what is the spark for this conspiracy theory? And it creates this uncertainty that I think is very interesting and very alienating at the same time. The narrator doesn't think that Felix actually believes the conspiracies, but she's like, well, why is he doing it then? What is the motivation? And she can't figure it out. Like, what was he doing this for? Well, and in a sense, your whole book is like that. As a reader, we're questioning, like, well, which bit is real? The first night they meet, he tells her an alternate story about his past, like certain facts are changed. And then, of course, once they start dating, he has to tell her, oh, look, I was lying about that. This is why. And it's interesting then that she uses his own tactics when she goes out on all these dates. She borrows things from all sorts of people, but she often borrows things from him or from their life together or whatever. And I think that's a lot how how fiction is written anyway. You're pulling details that are real and then recombining them or changing them so that they become fake or fictional again. But it seems to have a sort of a really sort of sinister tone to it when she's doing it which, and when he's doing it as well. Definitely. Well, you talk a lot in your criticism about modern contemporary literature and its problems and what you wish was in it. What were you trying to remedy in your own novel? I really wanted to do something where the narrator is like a smart person. And there seems to be this belief that fiction writers should be kind of stupid <laughs> and they should like to, to withhold knowledge in some way. So sometimes I'll have the experience of listening to an author talk about themselves or about their book or whatever. And I'll be like, oh, that person sounds really intelligent. And then you read the book and it's like a sixth grade reading level, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's like, who is this for? Do you think everybody's stupid? Cause I don't think everybody is stupid actually, despite my fearsome reputation. Like I think that people can sort of rise to the occasion and actually people probably want like a complicated, difficult, engaging novel that reflects the complication of life. I don't think that life is very simple. I think it's like an endless problem. And that is why I wanted to write fiction because I think it's the best form for thinking about certain aspects of life, lying and, and manipulation being some of those things. <laughs> Does that answer your question? I don't really know. I was sort of going on a tangent. Yeah, no, the short I answer just, is long yeah. sentences. I wanted to write long sentences. Ooh. And you do, you do. I I love them. And oh, this is one thing which I just think is funny. So the the amazing quote from Zadie Smith, I have to read because it is, if if people haven't read the book and they probably haven't yet, but they may have, this really does capture capture the experience of reading this novel. And she says, This novel made me want to retire from contemporary reality. I loved it. And a, that is what it's like to read it. B, 
but I think because you nail down in such a smart way what we're thinking but can't quite make sense of, it's very comforting as well. I find it very comforting to read depressing or sort of angry or negative books. Like whenever I'm sad, I like to read Thomas Bernhard, who is, you know, like a, a really sort of cynical, ranting author who hates everyone around him. And I think that that's fantastic because you feel that way sometimes if the mood of the thing that you're reading matches your mood, I think. You feel that you're not out of sorts with the world or out of step with the world rather. I don't know if this is a good time to ask this question or not, <laughs> but what lights you up? Oh, like makes me happy. I mean, yeah, I think you can interpret it anyway. <laughs> I think that I get really enthusiastic about lots of books, particularly I mean mostly older ones, but I always feel like when someone has done when someone has pulled it off, like an artistic feat of some kind, I almost feel like I'm like in the stands watching sports and I have a lot of like sporty feelings about writing. Like I listen to the same music that I use to exercise when I'm writing pretty much. Like I need the momentum. And like if you can pull off a long, a wonderful paragraph or something that makes like a really awesome point at the end, I'm like, yes, like, like my, like throwing my arm in the air or whatever. What else do I like? I like treats. Wait, I want to know what <laughs> music you listen to that you both work out to and write to. Oh, I mean, I listen to sort of terrible music. I listen to like house music a lot of the time. And I listen to these like long SoundCloud mixes because I don't want to, I don't need to be an agent of my music choices when I'm trying to like exert effort in some other area of my life that's quite difficult. So I'm like, please, someone just take this away from me. And I have the bad problem of listening to the same song over and over again and then sort of ruining it, but also making myself unable to sleep because it's always some kind of like peppy song. I don't know. <laughs> Do you think your Berlin years and your experience there, because that's such a, a music city, you know, isn't it? It's yeah. like very deep house and all like this certain style of music. I wonder if that seeped into you while you were there. Yeah, I think so. And I think that there are certain things that I can't stop thinking are cool because of Berlin. And I there are certain things, conversely, that I think are very uncool because of Berlin. And I think that it more or less ruined going to parties for me because the parties there are so, so fun and cool. And then you like go to a party in New York and you're like, this sucks. This is so lame. Like, what are you all wearing? <laughs> you know? And it's not because... It's, it's not like a traditional kind of snobbery or elitism, and that's why I like it. Like, it's something that everybody could access, but it does have standards. And I'm getting very – see, I'm getting very worked up about partying in Berlin. <laughs> but I, that's because I'm not allowed I to go there. I want to go. No. I know so I, badly. I've only been to Berlin once and had kind of a string of in interesting experiences there, which we will not go into. But I didn't <laughs> get to go – to that club and I remember like friends telling me about it what is the premise of it like well, how do you dress to get in there is it all like leather and quite I think the general advice is to wear all black and don't look like you're going to one of these clubs where you need to be wearing shoes and stuff like you just need to look like you want to have a good time it's fun well also Berlin is fun in general you can smoke inside. I think that that creates a real – when you can smoke inside and drink outside, I think that that creates a very fruitful environment. 
what prompted you to start writing the book in the first place? I think there were probably a couple of things. I wish I knew which one was first, but I think probably the first thing was like I, I wanted to write a novel for a while. Uh, I think it's really the best form for saying, talking about certain things. And and I really wanted to write a novel that had the internet in it and was had the internet in it in a, a really natural way and like re- reflected how the internet was being used by so many people. Because I think even now the internet, you know, it's not taboo to put someone on their phone or, you know, Facebook on a novel or whatever, but it acts more as like a part of the scenery often. And it's just sort of like a historically accurate detail to have a character send a text message or, or to have an email in your, in your book. And I wanted it to be more integrated, both in the style, like I just wanted it to feel like a very contemporary book that was still literary and still serious and taking these things which many literary people can consider kind of pathetic or banal or like beyond the realm of concern and to take them really seriously because that is what life is like now so that is one thing I wanted to do and I also kind of really wanted to write and nobody really asked me about this I really wanted to write like like a women's a women's fiction sort of thing like I wanted it to be about a woman who has a bad boyfriend and like goes on a bunch of dates, but I wanted it to be in this kind of very serious style that is like not not often how these books are written. Basically, even if we're talking about serious literary books, there's often this kind of like grave tone to the stories that I don't like. Yeah, and also I think because we both read so many books, contemporary books. Mm-hmm. If it is about women and dating, those dates can seem trivial, whereas real dates you go on in real life stay with you forever, the weird things that people do and say, and I'm sure for men too, but maybe not for them. I think (laughs) they maybe just roll from one to the next, whereas (laughs) women really take on the feedback that you get from someone in these, what yeah. what, it, what is trying to be or hoping to be an intimate future, but also with internet dating too, right? You turn up and everyone gets so intimate so fast about what they're willing to tell people. And I think mm-hmm. that swapping of information is so invasive sometimes and yet you find yourself doing it yourself, playing a part. Yeah. And it's really disorienting too because it's not – I think I was saying something like this earlier, but it's not how you would actually – you would get to know someone in another context. The way you would get information about – like the way that I know you, for example, we met in a sort of live scenario and then we ran into each other periodically over the years. And the things that I know about you are are disparate, right? Like they don't come in a kind of paragraph that you wrote to me about yourself. (laughs) They – come from me interpreting the things that you say. And I think that that's like how intimacy can develop. And I think that having to dec- make declarations about yourself in whatever way, like I'm this kind of person, these are my likes, these are my dislikes, I'm from here, this is what I think that that means, does not give the other party like enough power in – it creates like a power play almost that that is seems to me very unlikely to produce a good relationship. But also I think with dating, like all of the 
all of the sort of feelings that go into it beforehand and the anticipation and the fear and the anxiety and all this stuff is very interesting and something that is actually very serious in a huge part of life. But maybe the answer to your previous question about what made me want to write this novel is that I really like a challenge and I wanted to take these two things, which are dating and the internet that everybody thinks are sort of insignificant and, and make them seem kind of give them the proper weight that the weight that I think that they should be discussed. Well, I think you succeeded. <laughs> Thank and you. now I think we're ready. I think we're, we've shared enough intimate moments to go on mm -hmm. like a friend date in real life. It's so, so true. If only that were legal. Yeah, yeah. It will be soon. It will be soon. But how can we find you online to follow along with everything you're doing? Uh, you can probably, the best place to find me is probably on Twitter. I'm just Lauren Euler, or that's also my website, laurenoiler.com. And there will be, anytime I write a piece or have an event, that will be on the website too. Thank you so, so much for coming. On Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Lauren Euler. Her book, Fake Accounts, is available now, and you can purchase it through the link on our website. You can follow Lauren on Twitter at Lauren Euler and read more of her work at laurenoiler.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone.